1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Children enjoy playing with toys. That's why parents enjoy giving toys to their children. But even well-meaning parents should beware. For there are certain toys that pose a danger to our children if that toy is abused or misused. For example, toys with tiny little parts. You know, they can break off and a child can choke if those little parts are swallowed. Toys with ropes or strings or elastic bands can strangle a child. Toys with sharp edges can puncture and wound. Toys with a fluffy or a billowy texture, they can suffocate a small child. Toys that travel fast, like bikes and rollerblades, they can lead to nasty falls. It's ironic, but the very toys that are invented and intended for a child's enjoyment, if not handled properly, can actually cause harm to a child. Now you'd think when children grew up and became adults, we'd no longer have to worry about the child and his toys. But not so quick. For toys can be just as dangerous for adults as they are for kids. A man's toys, a woman's treasures, can pose considerable risk to a person's spiritual health and eternal destiny. Let me alert you. Your relationship with God can be affected by how you handle your toys. Items meant for our enjoyment can cause us serious harm. We need to beware of our toys. It may surprise you, but how we see our toys is a direct reflection on our attitudes and beliefs about God. Toys reveal our theology. Did you know that? A few years ago, I ran across a comparison of various religions and their approach to toys. Here's the list. Materialism. Here's how you define it. He who dies with the most toys wins. Catholicism. He who denies himself the most toys wins. Anglican. They were our toys first. (laughs) Greek Orthodox. No, they were ours first. Islamic fundamentalists. He who dies exploding his toys wins. (laughs) Atheism, there is no toy maker. Polytheism, there are many toy makers. Evolutionism, the toys made themselves. Church of Christ scientists, we are the toys. Communism, everybody gets the same number of toys and you're in big trouble if we catch you selling yours. Baha'i, all toys are just fine with us. Amish, toys with batteries are a sin. Mormonism, every boy can have as many toys as he wants. 
<laughs> Voodoo. Let me borrow that doll for a second. <laughs> Hinduism, he who plays with bags of plastic farm animals loses. Seventh-day Adventist, he who plays with his toys on Saturday loses. Southern Baptist, if your toy is a Disney product, you lose. You may have to go back a few years for that one. Church of Christ, he whose toys make music loses. Jehovah's Witnesses, he who sells the most toys door-to-door wins. Pentecostalism, he whose toys speak in an unknown language wins. Existentialism, Toys are a figment of your imagination. Agnosticism, no one really knows whether toys make any difference. My point is, is that you can tell a lot about a person's attitude toward God by how they handle their toys. And this is what Paul says about the Thessalonians. They had turned to Jesus by turning away from their toys. As we learned last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul commends the believers in Thessalonica for being modeled Christians. They were exemplary in the lives they lived. He vividly recalls their work of faith and their labor of love and their patience of hope. They considered each other as beloved brethren. And even though they had received the gospel amidst fierce persecution, their affliction couldn't dampen the joy they had received and experienced in the Holy Spirit. In fact, news of what was happening among them had spread to the surrounding regions. The Thessalonians had gained quite a reputation. Paul didn't even have to brag about these new believers. Their vibrant faith spoke for itself. And everyone had noted their attitude toward their toys. How they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. They turned their backs to their toys and their face to God's Son. Here's the last entry on my list of religions and their attitudes towards toys. Christianity. He who turns from his toys to Jesus wins for all eternity. You see, to be a true Christian, to really know God and walk with God, you first have to turn from your toys. Certainly, God is a dad who loves his kids. He made all things for our enjoyment. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father in heaven. But just like a toy in the hands of a child, even a good gift can be dangerous if we don't handle it properly. You see, God has made every human a worshiper. It's within our constitution, our basic nature, to latch on and look up to something greater than ourselves. Everybody worships somebody or something. We can't not worship. Thus, when mankind rejected God's authority and struck out on his own, he needed to find a substitute, another object that he could worship. You see, God is spirit. That makes him immortal, eternal, invisible. You see, sin caused man to die spiritually. Sin destined man to live life on a visible, tangible plane. That left man to lust after a God that he could see and touch and grab and feel. The invisible God chose to reveal himself through ideas and words, through the written word, the Bible. 
and the living word, his son. But man, sinful man, chose images over words. He wanted gods that he could see instead of the invisible God. And so he carved gods out of wood and forged gods out of metal. The ancient world was proliferated with idols and images. You see, the Bible teaches us that the true God made man in his own image and in his own likeness. God's plan was to reveal himself tangibly, but it would be through the hands and feet of his people. Ultimately, he did this through the God-man, Jesus. But fallen man, he didn't want to be a reflection of the invisible God. Instead of a reflection, he wanted to be the reflector. He wanted glory for himself. And so rather than live as God's image, man fashioned gods after his own fallen likeness. Pagan gods reflected sinful man's desires and dreams. You know, the ancient gods, they were an exaggeration of both the best and the worst of human beings. Gods and goddesses were the magnification of human power and beauty. But they also reflected our lusts and our jealousies and our vengeance. A prideful world rejected the true God and worshipped themselves by customizing gods after their own image. That's why idolatry is the very height of our rebellion. And this is why few sins arouse the angst and anger and ire of God more than idolatry. Hey, when God debuted his top ten list, you remember his number one concern? You shall have no other gods before me. Years later, when God judged the Hebrew people, it was because of their idolatry. He says in 1 Kings chapter 16, they provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Ezekiel chapter 20 speaks of a Jerusalem that's been ravaged. The walls have been broken down. God has judged his people. And he tells us why. For their heart went after their idols. And in case we're inclined to relegate idolatry to the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 warns us, My beloved, flee from idolatry. As does 1 John chapter 5 verse 21. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. You see, God has always despised idolatry. Of course, I know what you're thinking now. You're thinking, okay, idolatry's despicable. I couldn't agree more. If I were God, I'd be ticked off too. But what does idolatry have to do with me? I don't have any wooden statues on my mantle. There are no shrines or icons sitting on my nightstand. Isn't idolatry an ancient problem? Hey, make that assumption, and you may have made a potentially fatal mistake. For even in modern times, idols abound. We probably live today in history's most idolatrous time. Millions of people the world over today are trapped in a snare of idolatry. Hinduism, for example. Hinduism holds to over 330 million gods and goddesses. More than eight idols per household. Did you know that today there is enough beef in India to feed the entire continent, but it can't be harvested because cows are considered sacred? Holy cow! (laughs) Monkeys and rats, they get the same treatment. 
Rodents are allowed to ravage the crop because they're worshipped rather than exterminated. There are also people throughout the Far East who worship a chubby little image called the Buddha. Did you know that every year 100,000 Buddhists flock to Sri Lanka to pay homage to the Buddha's tooth? They go to the Temple of the Tooth. There it's on display. Reminds me of the wife. She snuggled up next to her husband one night in bed and she was feeling kind of frisky. She kind of leaned over and she whispered in his ear. She said, baby, oh, you got the body of a God. And then she laughed and said, yeah, you're like Buddha. <laughs> I thought that was funnier than that. <laughs> you know, idolatry also exists among the disciples of Rome. They're Catholics today who bow before statues of the Virgin. They direct their prayers to icons and relics, believing them to hold supernatural power. New Age patrons today wear their crystals and sleep under pyramids, trusting inanimate objects to infuse in them spiritual life and energy and healing. Did you know there's even a group in Denver, Colorado, known as the Church of the Risen Elvis, They've enshrined an Elvis Presley doll above an altar and adorned it with candles and flowers. They chant Elvis' name. They pray to Elvis. They hold special services whenever there's an Elvis sighting. Can you imagine all this for a fellow who said of himself, I ain't nothing but a hound dog. <laughs> My point is, even in modern times, idolatry is alive and well. You may still feel, though, that this really isn't an issue that you need to be bothered with. This is a million miles from where I live. You're reasoning, I'm in no danger of idolatry. Oh, but you need to think again. D.L. Moody once said, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. Arthur Wallace put it this way, an idol may be defined as any person or thing that has usurped in the heart the place of preeminence that belongs to the Lord. And perhaps Billy Graham said it best. Whatever you love most, be it sports, pleasure, business, or God, that is your God. You see, idolatry today is more subtle, but it is every bit as lethal. You see, the gods that we're prone to follow go by a more innocuous name. We never come out and refer to them as gods or idols. We just call them toys. But remember, toys can be dangerous if handled improperly. All kinds of seemingly harmless items can be turned into a god. Whatever pushes Jesus off the top shelf in your life, whatever captures your imagination and attention and rivals your affections for Jesus, it's a toy that's been taken too far. If we're not careful, an item can become an idol. Take, for example, our possessions. Oh, you might scoff at the thought of idolatry. Just inspect my china cabinet, Pastor Sandy. Come look at my coffee table. No idols in my house. Hey, but let's go out and look in the garage. What's parked out there? Or let's look in your golf bag. Or your gun case. Or your jewelry box. Or your wine rack. Or your bank account. You know, idolaters today can drive and wear and sip and play with 
and polish their idol. Again, 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, Paul tells us, God gives us richly all things to enjoy, but we're not to worship anything but Him. Please don't slough off my warnings as if this could never apply to you. Hey, you remember the fly that landed on the fly paper? The fly boasted, my fly paper. While the fly paper said, my fly. Material possessions have a way of possessing us. They grab a part of us and they jerk us away from Jesus. Billionaire Ross Perot, he once said, if you make a lot of money, if you go out and buy a lot of stuff, it's going to break. Go to any yacht basin in the world. Nobody's smiling and I'll tell you why. Something broke that morning. The generator is out. The microwave won't work. Things don't mean happiness. You know, we accumulate a lot of stuff thinking it's going to better our life. But all the while we find ourselves living just to keep the stuff up to snuff. What's supposed to bring us enjoyment becomes an enslavement. Possessions can become an idol, but so can people. Human relationships can take precedent over our relationship with God. When a friend or a spouse or a sweetheart grows more important to us than God, it's become an idol. Once a young man, he made an idol out of the thought of a perfect wife. You know, he made an idol out of an ideal. He never had time to serve the Lord because he spent all his time searching for the perfect woman. Here's how he described her. Always cheerful. Could have married movie stars but wanted only me. Hair that never needs curlers or a beautician. Beauty that won't run in a rainstorm. Never sick, just allergic to jewelry and fur coats. <laughs> Insists that moving furniture by herself is good for her figure. Expert in cooking, cleaning, car repairs, and house painting. Favorite hobbies, mowing the lawn and shoveling snow. Hates charge cards. Her favorite statement, what can I do for you, dear? Wishes I would go out with the boys more often and loves me just because I'm so sexy. Well, I think we all can agree that there is no such person. And yet when you look to another human being to meet the needs that only God can fill, you've destined yourself to that same kind of disappointment. I hope you understand that no one should be more important to you than Jesus. I tell you, no one will love you the way Jesus loves you. Not your child, not your spouse, not your friend. You know, I always wanted my kids to know that I love them more than anything else in the universe except God. My kids needed to know that they were not supreme. It's healthy for them to realize that they take a back seat to God. A parent's love for his kid should always play second fiddle to his allegiance to God. You know, when you make a child your idol, and some of us do, we bestow on that child an unnatural importance. We harm the child and we insult our God. Popularity can also become an idol. Selfish ambition, the lust for fame, people's approval, esteem in the eyes of others. This is what drives some people. I read an interview recently with Madonna. She admitted, 
Even though it's not supposed to matter, it does matter what people think. Each performance, I try my best to show everybody that I did make something out of my life. She lives for the cheers of the crowd. Many people idolize popularity. Position two can become an idol. You know, the rock star lives for applause, while the businessman lives for achievement. Life for him is the next rung on the ladder. He lives to close the deal. Success and his trappings have become his God. I remember when I studied management at Georgia State, the definitive work at the time on business success was a book written by Tom Peters called In Search of Excellence. Fast forward now 30 years. Recently, I read a disturbing quote by Tom Peters. Apparently, his philosophy has taken him the wrong direction in life. Tom Peters writes, The cost of excellence is the giving up of family vacations, little league games, birthday dinners. We have a number of friends whose marriages crumbled under the weight of their devotion to a dream. We are frequently asked if it's possible to have it all, a fully satisfying personal life and a fully satisfying hardworking one. And our answer is no. Isn't that sad? Who wants to serve that kind of a God? And Jesus agrees. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You have to choose one or the other. I'll tell you, it's a cruel God who forces you to pursue an excellence that's relationally bankrupt. It causes you to turn your back on the people you love most. In contrast, make Jesus your God and all the rest of your life falls into its proper place. You know, some folks turn work into a God while other people live for the weekend. They exalt pleasure and leisure as their idol. Oh, what movie's playing? What tickets can we buy? How many days until our next vacation? They'll seek and serve Jesus when there's nothing else to do. A philosophy can also become an idol. How many good people have gotten caught up in an ideology or cause or movement? It can be noble. It can be a worthwhile cause. Maybe world peace or save the whales or kick out the incumbents. Something like that. But if our involvement in that cause rivals our loyalty to Jesus or distracts us for him, from him, We've taken it too far. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he once summed it up. He said, men are idolaters. And they want something to look at and kiss and hug and throw themselves down before. They always did. They always will. And if you don't make it out of wood, you must make it out of words. Even an ideology can be turned into an idol. Again, please don't underestimate this. For we are all prone to idolatry. And this is why Paul marveled at the Thessalonians. How they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. God has given us all things to enjoy. Like a good parent, God knows His kids like to play with toys. But beware, for toys pose a danger when they're handled improperly. Whether it's a possession or a person or popularity or position or pleasure or a philosophy, even a good thing can devolve into an idol. Paul Tillich writes, Idolatry is the elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. 
You see, real worship, it keeps all of life in proper proportion, whereas idolatry blows stuff up. It blows lesser stuff up. Hey, do you love the blesser more than the blessings? I hope so. Here's what impressed Paul. The Thessalonians, they were Greeks, and they had formerly worshipped a pantheon of Greek gods. Paul knew that the great danger for these people was to think that they could just add Jesus to their already long list of gods and goddesses. Oh, we worship Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo, and now we worship Jesus. But the Thessalonians were smarter than that. They knew better. They knew it was one or the other. They understood that if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Jesus demands top billing. He's nobody's co-star. Jesus doesn't come to take sides, friend. He comes to take over. Here's a common but a critical error. Jesus isn't just an add-on. He's just not a spiritual supplement. You just sort of add to your life. His goal is not to accentuate the life you already have planned. Understand who Jesus is. Paul says in verse 10, whom God raised from the dead. Don't you dare think that Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave just to be a plug-in, just to be a little software patch to make your current life run smoother. Jesus comes to create a brand new life for us, to overwhelm us, and then to overhaul us. Paul identifies him, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus died on Calvary. Then he rose again to become the cavalry. You know, later Paul's going to talk about the great escape. Before God's judgment comes down, the church is going to go up. One day Jesus will come riding on the clouds to snatch up believers from all across the globe. We call this event the rapture. Afterwards, he'll unleash God's terrible wrath on the wicked world. We'll talk about this when we get to chapters 4 and 5. But here's Paul's point now. Don't think that this mighty Jesus is ever going to be satisfied as a minority partner. Don't offer him partial ownership. That's an insult. For Jesus, it's all or nothing. Jesus refuses to be an accessory in anybody's wardrobe. I mean, what if I came home to my wonderful wife one day and I said to Kathy, you know, honey, I think we should modify our marriage vows. Let's just be married on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then I'll just play the field on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Those of you who know my wife, you'll know what will happen. (laughs) She'd deck me with one punch. Marriage doesn't work that way. You pledge yourself to your spouse for every moment of every day, or not at all. And this is how a relationship with Jesus works. He's the Lord. And yet I see churches today, they're full of folks just sort of cruising through life, doing fine, man, living the American dream. And yet they got this hole in their life that's nagging and gnawing at them. And so they come to church. They get spiritual once a week. And they come to church to try to somehow silence the rumble. But but understand, they're not really interested in surrendering control of anything. They're not that serious. They just see Jesus as a helpful app. 
that'll make their life easier. And these are the folks today who are in greatest danger of idolatry. You see, I know people who want their sins forgiven. They relish God's favor and His blessing. They especially desire a home in heaven. But until they get there, they stubbornly, they're determined to do whatever and however they please. You see, these are the people who are headed for a rude awakening. Hey, salvation, it's by grace. Salvation is no charge. Aren't you glad? We come to Jesus freely. But we can't come dragging a bag of idols with us. It doesn't work that way. Jesus refuses to save a man he cannot command. You see, the only cost to you for your salvation is whatever you're clutching in your hand. For to take hold of Jesus' hand, you've got to let go of whatever you're holding in yours. You've got to decide that whatever you're clutching on to, a possession or a person or a pleasure, it isn't worth missing out on Jesus you got to let it go. In fact, it might still be there for you after you embrace Jesus, and Jesus might show you its proper place in your life. But first, got to let it go. you got to let go of it before you can grab His hand. Today's pseudo-Christian has divided his life up like a pizza. There's the family slice, and then there's the work slice, and then there's the hobby slice, and then there's the sex life slice, and then there's the money slice, and the leisure time slice, and then the religious slice. And Jesus gets relegated to the religious slice. Yeah, Jesus, we'll put you in charge of Sunday morning from 10 to 12. That's your part of my life. While the person remains free to manage the rest of the pizza however he chooses. Hey, fool yourself if you like, but Jesus isn't buying that pizza. Jesus is the cheese that covers the whole pizza, that flavors the whole pizza. And yes, I'm going to say it. You knew I was going to say it. Jesus is the big cheese. He's not a partner. He's sole proprietor. Becoming a Christian means coming under new management. The Thessalonians, they turned from toys to serve the living and true God and to wait on His Son from heaven. You know, this past Thursday, Kathy came home from the Pastor's Wives Conference in California and all day Wednesday, I waited on her. Now, that didn't mean that I sat there on the couch and twiddled my thumbs all day. No, I waited on her. I got ready for her return. I worked hard. I did all the dirty dishes I'd been piling up in the sink all weekend. And I did my laundry. And I even cleaned up the yard where things would look great when she came in. And I even bothered to shave. Shave that week. I wanted to kiss, man. I can't be bristly. I spent the whole day in eager anticipation. And this is what impressed Paul about the Thessalonians. It wasn't just the way they had turned from the wrong gods, but the way they had embraced the true God. They longed for Jesus. They waited. They were looking to see Him every day. You know, if you hear nothing else that I say today, hear this. 
Whatever a man's idol happens to be, whether a possession or a person or popularity or position or pleasure or philosophy, nothing makes for a better God than the real God. Jesus is the one possession worth having, for he gives rather than takes. He is the person who can reach deep down inside of you and draw out what's best. Who needs popularity with men when you can become somebody in Christ? And there is no more powerful a position than to reign with Jesus forever and serve with him right now. Jesus provides real soul-satisfying pleasure. He supersedes all philosophies and causes and movements. Jesus will shine when all other stars have faded. He is the hope of glory. When Nancy Kerrigan skated in the 94 Olympic Games, her mother had to press her nose against the television just to see her daughter perform. Nancy's mom was nearly blind. She could barely make out the beautiful figure of her daughter in the elegant lines of her magnificent skating. A news reporter was there, and he asked Mrs. Kerrigan what she could see. She said, well, I see some shapes and some color and, and some movements when she jumps. And then the mother, she finally burst out into tears. And she started sobbing uncontrollably. And she turned and she told the reporter, she said, but I can't see her face. I can't see my daughter's face. And this is how the Thessalonians felt about Jesus. They could see his hand at work. They could recognize the silhouette of his presence. They could trace God's movements behind the scenes. But they couldn't see his face. And this is my dilemma. This is your dilemma. We see so dimly. And this is why I'm waiting for God's Son from heaven. For the longing of my heart is to see Jesus face to face. I love the old hymn, Thou, O Christ, are all I want, more than all in Thee I find. Here is the kind of God that you want, more than all in Thee I find. As another man put it, I have never met a soul who has set out to satisfy the Lord Jesus and has not been infinitely satisfied himself. Jesus wants all the broken pieces of your life so that he can put them back together to make a healthy whole. But how can he do his job if you're holding back a piece or two? Don't you see? You're undermining what he wants to do for you in your life. Jesus is calling us to turn from our idols to wait on his son. Here's today's big idea. You don't come to God toting all your toys. Like any father, God loves to give good gifts to his kids, but toys can be dangerous. Let's make sure we always worship the giver and never the gifts.